Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. For my current show up in Tokyo at Maho Kubota Gallery, all those paintings were made with golden acrylic mediums and golden artist acrylic colors. It wouldn't have been possible without it. They make, in my opinion, the best paints out there. Not only do they make acrylic paints, they make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints. You can check them out at your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. You know who else keeps it moving in the studio? Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum makes amazing coffee, and you can head over to their website at fulcrumcoffee.com and check out their subscriptions. They have an amazing variety that you could choose from and have coffee delivered to your house every month. Everything from light growth subscription to espresso to all brands, single origin. They even have a sunset subscription, a jazz alley night subscription. It's a really cool curated coffee experience that can be delivered to your door. And you can get a discount by adding the code Alfred Studio whenever you check out from the website. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters from Seattle. Check them out. Sarah Greenberger Rafferty is a multidisciplinary visual artist based in Brooklyn since 2000. She's associate professor and director of graduate studies in photography at Pratt Institute. She's the chair of the Artist Council of Powerhouse Arts, also in Brooklyn, which will bring art and craft fabrication facilities and education to the community in 2022. She received a BFA from the Rhode Island School of Design and an MFA from Columbia University School of the Arts. Current exhibitions include Forum 85, Sarah Greenberger Rafferty at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh, and Views from Somewhere at Document, Chicago. Studio Visit, Sarah's upcoming experimental monograph will be published by Inventory Press in the winter of 2021-22. I spoke to Sarah about teaching, sassy influence, family matters, Providence Days, exploring photography, her show at the Carnegie, and much more. Here's our conversation. But um, with teaching, do you do remote still, or are you, are you back in person? Half and half. Okay. Um, this semester, I'd say the sort of most of the teaching work is remote. Um, one of my classes is completely virtual, and we did that for a number of reasons. Um, and then one is sort of half and half, but it's a really big group because it's like four sections, and so there's just really nowhere safely to convene all in person and um, some of my colleagues have been going in the room for like lectures and people in my section have been more into staying remote so but like it, when it was uh, really nice out at the beginning of the term we were like meeting outside which was so lovely yeah that's advantage right so with you and did you cause you know like when it happened, 
or at least for for me when I was teaching, because I teach at Penn State, so I commute. I'm there like two nights a week. Uh-huh. So you know, it was right before spring break. You know, when it was started to get like to where everyone was kind of like, oh, this is like going to be a thing, you know. And then spring break hit, and then it was done. Like during spring break, they're like, yeah, we're not going back. It's remote. So it was like crash course in online everything. Yeah. Our university has a really good sort of global studies online thing. So the infrastructure was like set for it. And, you know, we had done some Zooms with visiting artists like me and my classes. So I felt like I could, trans, you know, kind of like make it work pretty quickly. But I think some people, some professors and some people in different situations were just like, what? How do we do this logistically? Did you up your tech game at all? Did you like have to... So you you didn't yeah. get like the whole I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I think I I definitely you know studied a lot for the test. I went to all of the trainings and I thought about how it would be good and um and I actually you know I think whatever March April May, twenty twenty was like full triage, and our school actually gave us a week. They, they canceled a week of classes for people to get, for faculty to get up and running, which was like, you know, more than most people had. So yeah, it was a little nice. bit of, of a buffer to sort of like reinvent. But then in the summer, the summer of, uh, first summer of COVID 2020, I basically, yeah, I did, I did all the homework. I, I took online classes myself. I went to all the trainings. I you know, was in a number of groups. I ran a sort of part of this Art Professors America group, and I sort of like initiated some Zooms where we would kind of talk about how we were going to deal with fall 2020 and beyond, um, you know, once a week all summer. So I feel like by fall 2020, I was pretty much um, as prepared as one could be. But yeah, the the sort of like the the unexpectedness and crashing and and there's a lot of things that are really great about online teaching accessibility wise and um, this is a probably a minority opinion but I'm like a big fan of the chat as another stream of dialogue um, which is something that can't happen in real life and um, and also just like a way to enrich the the talk and allow different forms of participation. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot about teaching and learning that I, that is brand new in the past 19 months, I guess. Yeah. I think it forced some of us who learned in a different environment in a way to adapt to some of the fast changing things that younger students were, you know, fluid with. And for some, that was uncommon. I mean, I can imagine if I was like 80 years old, I probably would have been like, come on, like I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in the educational pedagogical landscape that like if you're, I don't know, maybe I, I guess I feel this. I'm over 40. There's certain things that are like, yeah, more and more I can't. <laughs> I can't. Um, And and some of them are reasonable and some of them are um, less than reasonable. You know what I mean? So, so like I always say, um, 
you know, I hope myself to be a really old and uh, specific faculty member that has certain things to offer one day, you know, um, right. and, and, and while I can't imagine it now, of course not, there might be some things that I can't do <laughs> in the future. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I intend to be one of those professors at some point in my life, but then of course there are others who are, um, you know, it can be harmful in their rigidity. So yeah, it can it's, be limiting. Yeah, and it's like, I think also people are able to help themselves. You know, you just see in the workplace in general, there are people who are able to help themselves and adapt, and there are people who are simply not able to help themselves and adapt, and that's sort of outside of being old or young. It's sort of just like a way of approach of, is it my responsibility to get myself up to speed, or um, am I just looking at, some you know job description and and qualities that were given to me upon entry and I don't adapt or grow at all you know yeah for sure I mean there's a fine line between um, feeling like well I, I've learned and done things in a certain way that can be valuable to balance against the way things are doing and working now and and then just being lazy and not wanting to think about other ways that people are doing things yeah yeah I mean I think some of it is laziness, but I think also, you know, it's people have limits and, um, and I think, you know, part of teaching or being in the educational sphere is being a lifelong learner and being also someone who is open to being both challenged and also to growing. And I think, um, for some people that is actually really difficult. For sure. And I I feel like, you know, a good example would be, you know, digital media has a big influence on photography, painting, and, and art in general. As a teacher, you don't necessarily have to go learn programs and be fluid on the computer, but you don't have to walk into a classroom and say like, oh, well, I just don't, I don't, I don't care about computers and digital media. That's BS. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, that's not I don't, help out. I know. I, that's, it's a pet peeve. Uh, I run a I direct a photography MFA program now, and um, after many years in multiple different departments, I'm sort of, you know, I'm sort of disciplinarily promiscuous or agnostic, um, and uh, and it's a big pet peeve when people walk into our student studios and are like, I don't know anything about photography, right. and it's like it's not really an option to be like to not be fluent in painting and sculpture and at this point it's the 21st century i think media in general um is something that anyone in the arts or culture in general should be fluent in you know yeah for sure and it's you know that idea of like well i just don't know photography or i don't yeah so much of our life is mediated through images that are connected to this i mean how could you it's just a way to disengage from a thoughtful critique or, you know, the, the subject matter because of it's almost prejudice in a way like media prejudice. Yeah. But that's the reason, the reason I thought about it too is because in looking at your work and thinking about your work, there's so, I, I love that. I mean, I've only seen your work in person in certain venues here in the city, you know, but I've looked at your work that you've showed 
all over the world, you know, and there, it's, it's vast. Like you, it feels like you don't know what you're going to get. And I love that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this, this next show, who knows? It could just all be giant um, ceramic sculptures <laughs> on the floor, but then it could be posters or, you know, I love that kind of, you know, fluidity of the medium. And, I, you know, I've, of course, when I was younger in art school and I first started seeing artists who were, you know, conceptual, who were doing these, like, using so many different ways to talk about ideas, I, I thought that was really intriguing. And I, I imagine your work exists in that dialogue, you know, in a, a cont- and, and I'm surprised that that doesn't happen more often these days because there is such an influx of media and ways of, of seeing and, and coming into contact with ideas that, that that's not out there more. But then I think maybe people, because there's so much, people tend to focus a little more, or, well, this is my lane, you know? Yeah. You know, I don't really know. I don't even know how to answer. Well, thank you for the kind words that you said. And I, I don't really even know how to respond hardly because, um, uh, my subjective relationship to the work is, one of uh, consistent concerns and um, and a sort of like an ethos that that is um, uh, for lack of a better word consistent or is is throughout has been there throughout I think it's complicated because um, I almost always like the artists that I like truly truly adore look up to and and kind of like feed my soul I mean it's it's a vast array of artists um but I always think about um artists like you know Andrea Frazier or something who who is so committed to the project um that potentially even some things get left by the wayside. Um, and I'm not saying this based on my outside view, I think based on some things I've heard her say before about her work and about um, how she made her work, you know, how it comes to be itself. Um, and for me, I always think about how, you know, I went to um, art school, I went to RISD in the 90s, and um, they really teach you how to make objects. Yeah. in in that pedagogy um, even as you know there I went through the photography curriculum which was a sort of hybrid of sort of conceptual like old school conceptual artists um, and uh, and sort of like the Yale school of um, photographic virtuosity and somewhere in between um, so at any rate I still feel really attached at all levels to making objects. Um, And sometimes I wish I didn't. Sometimes I wish that that wasn't um, something. And I also just really get a lot of pleasure in making things. Right. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's such a... It's an interesting kind of way to approach, you know, ideas and, and objects and images. It's, there's, I guess... You know, you must have early on had license to open things up and to not think about things being one specific or one specific way of making. You know, because I think a lot of times early on in our development of thinking about art, we 
things get narrowed to where, oh, you do this, or you're this kind of artist, or, you know, you work with this, or you just become familiar with a camera or a paintbrush or whatever it is. You know, like, when you first started being creative, was that open to you? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, So, I mean, I had a lot of uh, amateur artists in my family, um, and really, you know, sort of committed makers, especially um, on my father's side. Uh, My grandmother uh, painted sort of recreationally and and made a lot of clothes. Um, Even my dad, uh, you know, one of the first times I actually learned how to paint was my dad and I having a, um, a watercolor book you know, so basically buying a set of watercolors, this how-to book. Of course, I remember a big roll of bounty paper towels, which are, you know, essential for learning that craft. And um, and basically trying to teach ourselves how to make washes and whatever. Um, and that was really initiated by my dad's interest. Um, and so I think that that was... Um, part of my life early on, just sort of like making things and um, trying things. And yeah. and then I was always a kind of project maker, you know, in my home. Uh, that's, I think, normal for a lot of kids who end up being artists. You know, you just make things. I, I wasn't necessarily someone who drew a lot, but just always making projects. Um, and I think I did make, I did take a, black and white photography class for the first time when I was quite young in a summer camp called Adventures in Learning. Where was and, this? Uh, this is in the suburbs of Chicago. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so I remember making a pinhole camera and uh, those are sort of early memories. So, And then when I got to high school, I went to a giant public high school, um, which had a pretty robust arts program and a friend from junior high said like oh you can take art as a major which basically just meant like I think it meant it counted towards your GPA I don't really remember what the distinction between major and minor was in high school context and um, I started there and I just started you know that was one of the subcultures of the high school hallways that I was really involved in yeah so but you grew up outside of chicago yeah that's where you're born and raised yes yeah and parents were they creative Mm, i mean i I, as mentioned my um my father amateur artist extreme amateur but um like really enjoyed it (laughs) but um but was you know uh uh in i guess building management in real estate so well, that's not a good not, sort of life. not in the arts, and and my mother yeah. is a um, a psychotherapist. Well, there's there's a uh, inquisitive mental side to that. So yeah, I mean, I always joke because as as an art professor, specifically a graduate um, advisor, you know, I spend <laughs> I spend forty minute hours <laughs> in one on one talking deeply and unpacking meanings with with artists so it's it it doesn't feel too different you know i don't think people outside of you know that situation 
understand just how personal and kind of it's it's almost like odd in a way because we're we're very qualified to talk about the images that we are looking at and we know how to we've navigated those waters ideally you know what i mean and and sort of have this practice of of getting what's in here like out there visually but then to talk to students about that very personal meaningful stuff that comes from a very often it's you know charged you know it's just it's i don't know how we're we're not really trained in that um no i mean increasingly they are offering some of that kind of training you know and but i think it's slow and also because of the field and the adjunct um heavy landscape um it's it's difficult uh, to sort of, you know, right, make it regular or make it, I don't want to say mandatory, but um, to really support faculty in, in that kind of learning. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's lots of uh, transference that happens <laughs> and there's lots of um, other psychoanalytic and psychodynamic uh, relationship you know, uh, familiarities between art professor and student. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I think it's often, you know, we're talking about the work, but it's often assumed that we're talking about the person or, or, you know, I've had students, um, tell me, you know, I want to know if you like me and I have to be like, that's not the question. That's not what we're doing here. We're talking about artwork and uh, it's immaterial whether we like each other, you know, but it, it comes in because it's so personal, it's so intimate, and it's so, um, it, it's really stressful on, on both sides or on all sides. Yeah, it's really, re- and it's hard because, you know, the, well, I don't want to turn this into, a <laughs> anyway, the, the teacher-student relationship is like, you know, usually there's the classroom, you just go and you teach and then they leave, but with when you're teaching art, there's so much of that mining of personal material that it, it can help but go into some sort of, you know, territory that's probably not really, you know, it shouldn't have to necessarily. But that's such a big part of work, you know, is that the personal narrative. But then again, I guess I, I, it would probably be the same in theater or acting because it's all acting, but at the same time, you're tapping into personal experience and emotions. So you know, you would have to mine that, I guess. I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think a lot of like pedagogical innovation probably comes from K through 12 up to the university. Um, And I think that all levels of, and all different disciplines are starting to be informed by um, subjectivity um, right. you know, trauma-informed pedagogy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that wends its way into what we do as art yeah. faculty over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Yeah, that adjunctification of faculty is interesting as well. Did you know that story that came out about Amazon were exposed, like just how 
difficult the conditions are for workers. Like they're brought in, they're just kind of like worked to the ground and spit out, and then they just hire someone new for you know, so the salary doesn't keep going. Whatever yeah. it is, yeah. And I couldn't help but think, God, that sounds like that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's really complex. It's really, it's there's obviously a huge benefit to um, having adjuncts fill in, fill gaps, or people who are professionally busy and otherwise don't have the bandwidth to teach a full load or to be on faculty with all that it means. Um, And it's beneficial for the community, the learning community to have those people in the mix. It's good for scholars and artists. And when they're just um, starting out to get experience, um, but it's like all aspects of the, you know, the labor market and it, yeah, it's hardened. So it's the same way when they talk about the minimum wage and the uh, raising the minimum wage and the fact that, you know, minimum wage jobs, quote unquote, are the talking points of sort of the right are like, you know, that's for teenagers and, and, and you can't possibly pay a 14 year old working at McDonald's $20 an hour. Um, And maybe that's, some fake vision of the past, you know, when it was sort of one family income households for uh, white middle class people and and the rest was sort of a shadow economy or what have you. Um, But it's just demonstrably false, just like it's demonstrably false in um, universities that that adjuncts um, aren't just filling in or getting people to get the original um, experience. It's it's the it's an exploitation. Um, yeah, there's like adjuncts who've been there for 40, 48 years. Yeah, I mean, at my institution, yeah. we have adjunct tenure, which I believe started really benevolently to um, give you know professional artists, designers, architects the ability to have the stability of that job. Um, while they were also working professionals, which of course is the the model of this kind of education. Um, but it's just not that anymore. I love the adjunct tenure. It's like a working vacation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard because um, it sounds great it sounds like exactly what you want and it's it it came from a good place probably um but i think uh in practice now it sort of just and i i shouldn't you know really even be speaking on this because i'm a you know tenured full-time but um my experience is that it sort of keeps people in an exploited position right um all right, well, let's turn the wheel back <laughs> to you. <laughs> I mean, those are interesting. I, I don't I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you work at, a, you, you teach at an art school. Now I do, yeah. You know, and I teach at a tier one research university. So it, I, it's probably, there's probably a lot of parallels and there's probably things that are very, very different. Sure. You know, but it's interesting just conversationally, maybe to people who teach, maybe those who don't want me to get back to you growing <laughs> up in Chicago <laughs> wondering if you listen to rap music or punk um rap music okay fair enough and in chicago i'm trying to think of what the chicago 
rap scene was like back then. I mean, I'm sure you were listening to others for rap from other places, but well, let's yeah. I mean, I wasn't that cool, and I was, um, you know, it was basically what what tapes I could get my hands on. Um, my, I guess maybe like I in high school I was able to find out about more sort of like uh, expansive artists, but I think I, I pretty much was also listening to, you know, pop and rock and roll, but my favorite tapes were, um, Black Sheep, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing and, um, and, uh, Midnight Marauders by, um, Tribe Called Quest. Quest. Those were like my major tapes. Isn't it funny that tape tapes, (laughs) they were so big, right? I had my, I remember my parents driving me to the mall to get, like, I never got stuff. And they drove me to the mall and they were like, okay, we'll get you a tape. And I got um, People's Instinctive Travels and, you know, the, the first tribe one. Yeah. And, or maybe that was the second one, the first one that I came aware of. But that tape was so important and the art on it. Yeah. And that little fold out paper thing. Yeah. And then I had a, a, a tape that someone gave me. And it was a, I think it was a Max L, and it was a blue tape, and it was dubbed, uh-huh. and it was, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy. Yes. That thing, I played it so much that it actually wore out yep. at one point. I mean, but that tape, I can still see it. It had such a visual imprint on my brain. I'm sure Black Sheep one was like that for you. Oh yeah, I mean that was like, just over and over, and then, you know, I think. As a teenager, I mostly listened in in the car when I was driving, you know, uh, to school and to wherever I drove around. I was just listening to Tribe Called Quest on the way back from picking my son up from school the other day. And I was thinking about that sort of like nostalgia, you know, and just how, because remember when we got those tapes, that was like brand new, like that kind of like... (laughs) Afrocentric stuff, you know, it was different than, you know, NWA or Public Enemy and stuff like that that was also happening and it felt so fresh. And like I'm playing it and he's like, I'm sure he's thinking, this sounds so old. <laughs> it's like, you know, it it's happens so to different all of, of us. Sound. Yeah. I, guess I mean, it does, I, guess. I mean, I don't, yeah, it's, it's rough, but basically, um, it's still that era to when I was in my early 20s, like, right around, I guess, 9-11, that era of like music in general is kind of my comfort zone and it's just sort of like so cliche. Um, but What, that, that we say that that's the best music? Or just, I mean, I, I don't even know if I want to go down saying it's the best, but just cliche that that's, that's my go-to. Right. Um, it, there's something continually about that... Um, the music of your youth or whatever. It's just so intertwined with your burgeoning subjectivity and your sense of self and um, and just like a feeling that can't be put to words. And it it's, you know, it's like the Proustian Madeleine uh, for, for our era. It's just like you're there and you have a kind of feeling and nothing bad is happening because you kind of only remember the good stuff um, hopefully yeah. and uh, yeah yeah that's totally uh, that is a phenomenon I think of every I'm sure every generation now like when I hear Waiting Room by Fugazi it something happens in me yeah. 
I don't know what it is, but something, it's like an itch gets scratched that I didn't even know was itchy. Um, yeah, I didn't hear when, that stuff until college, I don't think, because, you know, I'm from the Midwest and, and then I went to college on the East Coast and I had no idea how provincial I was and, <laughs> until I, I showed up there and um, I just, yeah, my musical lexicon was like blown, blown up and just really, really expanded because um, it was sort of what, like... What year did you leave Chicago for school? 96. So you left I was right 17. when Chicago was about to like blow up yeah. as far as music. Yeah. I mean, not that it wasn't, you know, Chicago's always, I mean, if yeah. you're going to do provincial, you did the right spot. <laughs> I mean, Chicago is where to go, you know? Oh, but music. I wasn't into anything cool um, when I was like in high school. I was probably just going to, um, you know, whatever bands my parents knew or something or my uncle, you know? Right. It took a little to, <laughs> well, sometimes you got to leave the forest to see the trees. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Chicago had, you know, in those late nineties, early two thousands, indie rock was just like, it was a yeah. hotbed and that's, yeah. So, um, what was like along the Fugazi thing, what was the visual? Did you have the visual things that kind of, for me, it was like skateboarding, you know, like skateboard yeah. graphics were like visually imprinted. Um, did you have like a visual side of that? That's of that formative era that really left its mark on you besides the Alanis Morissette posters on your wall? Oh no, didn't have that. No, <laughs> never a fan. I, I can say that never, never a fan. Um, but, uh, but actually I was just this weekend speaking of nineties, listening to the set, the serious channel lithium, which is that era. And one of those, Morissette songs came on and it's just so funny and you do know all the words because you heard them on the radio Um, but um, uh, the two biggest visual influences for me as a child were one fashion magazines um, sassy mademoiselle um, sassy uh, what were the other big ones you know like bizarre vogue vogue was a little too like mature for me but yeah, maybe L, but but Sassy and Mademoiselle were like the biggest ones, and also Seventeen. Cosmo. No, Cosmo. Th- no, no. I don't think Cosmo. Oh, is that not it? Oh. I mean, it is, but I don't think that would have been allowed in my 17. house because they talked right. about sex. Um, but uh-huh. uh, um, so that was one, and then the second one was um, television, and um, I didn't have cable television growing up, so it was like a lot of syndication. So a Your lot of both. the a lot of the stuff that I watched, in addition to the like classic 90210 era soap operas of our generation and the sitcoms of our generation, like, you know. Um, Friends. Maybe Friends a little bit, but like, I was gonna say like Family Matters and and Perfect Strangers, also the sort of like 70s um, reruns, like yeah. Three's Company, um, uh, Mary Tyler Moore show, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so syndicated television and fashion magazines would be my final answer for the visual influence. Both accepted on the <laughs> record. 
No, I did that too. I mean, I remember growing up, I didn't. We didn't have cable, and it was we had a little black and white TV. That's really depressing to think of that. And uh, you know, it was like Brady Bunch. It was Brady whatever Bunch, they yes. played. I love Lucy. I didn't even watch like Mr. Ed. Sure. Remember? That's yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Jefferson's mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. You know, it was you just watched what was on the thing. You watched what was on and whatever. I love the cartoons though. The Saturday morning cartoons yeah. were great. I was Tom and Jerry and you know Bugs Bunny. I like that too. And Muppet Babies. Probably Muppet oh, yeah, Babies Muppet. is a huge aesthetic influence. <laughs> <laughs> I really see it in your latest work. <laughs> Muppet Babies. That's funny. But yeah, all that stuff has a big imprint, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, um, yeah, again, it has an outsized imprint because it was exposed um, at such a young age and also... There is something about music and television and reading that is a personal experience that even if it's in your family home, you you have as a child where you f- start to feel some level of agency or some level of um, differentiation, I guess. Yeah. All right. So I have a two-tiered question here. So when you got to the East Coast, A, in general, how was the transition to art school? And B, what were some of the... Because like you're talking about those early imprints being things that were just there. You know, you're exposed to it, so they become part of it. But what were the choices you started making both in the visual side of what you were interested in, in those mediums, and then also the influ- the realm of influence of like, you know, now what music, now what shows are you going to say, or what, what visually are you being inspired by? Um, yeah, so for me, the transition to art school was really great. I think since I was a small child, I wanted to be an adult and live on my own. And so I had no problems and I was really lucky to be able to go um, so far from home and go to a private school at RISD. Um, you know, the majority of my friends went to uh Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, um, and some, a few Indiana, you know, the big 10 universities. And so, so it was really a, a milieu that was different from, from what my closest friends were also doing. Um, but I was absolutely thrilled. I mean, it was like the best thing that happened to me. And I was such a nerd. I was so into it. Um, I, I loved art school, um, everything about it. And uh, I did feel, you know, I did feel, like I said, my provinci- provinciality um, really heavy, but you also start to like make friends and learn about, yeah, like bands. Um, for some reason, the only thing I remember, I remember like going to two concerts probably early on in college, which were maybe like, a far side concert and like um, Jonathan Richmond, which is like classic Boston adjacent yeah. situation. Um, and many more, I mean, we would like go to Boston, to the Middle East to see shows. And then there's, you know, Lupo's and what was the other one? Maybe the Met or something in Providence. Um, was the AS, what was it called, oh, AS220 or AS220 something? AS220 started kind of while I was there, and I didn't, you know, like, the obvious answer is, like, 
lightning bolt and all that kind of stuff. And I certainly went to a lot of parties where lightning bolt played um, a lot. Come on, that's an exaggeration. I went to a you know a number of parties. Three or four. I, yeah, I wasn't really. I I I was doing most often found in the studio on Saturday nights. Let's right. be honest. Um, but um, but that wasn't really fully my aesthetic and. Um, you know, I had some friends who were into hardcore and went to some shows like around Emerson College with them and um, not necessarily my jam, but um, but yeah, so I think that's what you asked about. And uh, I was a super sponge for basically every artist I learned about and every sort of approach that I learned about. Um, and certainly like, Barbara Kruger, Richard Prince, and and that kind of vibe was really influential to me. And when you think about it, it's sort of like, I guess, 10 years on from when they like first uh, started exhibiting in New York or 10 to yeah. 20. Um, and so that's kind of interesting also when I think about artists that I show my students or that my students bring up the sort of like life cycle of influence. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things about also going to school in Providence is it's such a small town. I mean, it's a city, but it's very small. So you end up really focusing on school and, you know, I could have a part-time job at the school and and then mainly throw myself into working. And, you know, I, yeah. I did make some really good lifelong friends, but... Um, I personally wasn't really like partying that much. I think that's the beauty of places like RISD or SCAD or VCU or, you know, like these art schools. Well, VCU is not an art school. But, you know, uh, Micah, well, Micah's in bio. I guess places that are a little off the grid. Yeah. They're not They're in a town, but it's not like, you know, yeah, I've said this before, plenty of times. I don't know how people go to SVA as an undergrad and do it because it just seems like you, there'd be so many distractions. Yeah. It'd be so overwhelming. I guess maybe you would just hide in the studio to, and make work because it's so daunting out there. But, um, you know, Providence is like a, a artsy town. It's small. It's got a cool scene. There's stuff there, but it's not overwhelming. It just seems like a great place to, to get your feet under you, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I... I who like I simply was not like sophisticated enough to have handled something like Cooper, even though, you know, there was that was always like a mythic being, you know, people were always trying to transfer to Cooper. Um the Manhattan unicorn. Yeah. Um <laughs> but at the same time, um I did have two really close friends that that went to um, NYU, the art program at NYU concurrently. And so there was a little bit of a pipeline and I started living in New York for the summers after my sophomore year um, and working here. And so I did sort of start the transition on the early side from to being like New York facing. I I'd never had any other ideas in my life besides I'm going to move to New York and be an artist. It sounds, you know, I, I'm probably uh, apocryphal on that. I'm sure I had a couple of other ideas, but, but when I think about it now, um, it's just not 
even from being in Providence and even as good and small and uh, manageable as it was to kind of be a late adolescent there, you know, the eye was always to moving to New York. Well, you did it. I mean. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the script writers were right. So what were you making in Providence? Like, what was the work like? Was um, it all over or was it pretty? Well, I was, um, so I was making a lot of different kinds of things as like a young person, I guess. And, um, and when it came time to kind of pick a major, I was choosing between photography and painting, which I know sounds really odd. Um, and actually on some, maybe it was a field trip, maybe it was just an independent trip. I can't really mem- remember, but um, around the time it was time to kind of pick which lane you were going to be in, um, I came to New York and I went to the Whitney and saw the um, Nan Golden I'll Be Your Mirror show. And um, I was like, like weeping, I'm sure. And I was like, that's it. I'm going into photography because none of the painting I'm seeing is making me have this kind of feeling. Um, so this is what I'm going to do. And, um, and so that's what I did. And I was really educated in the histories of photography and, you know, which is sort of like media studies adjacent. And, um, we had a really good kind of ethical barometer of how photos work. And I sort of like made a decision never to photograph a person and then started thinking about ways to work in the studio or with other kinds of setups to represent ideas. And so my um, my work as an undergrad was primarily in photo, but it was also, I was always making objects. I was always, I was almost never making like a s- straight photo. Um, right. So I, I, would, I would make the pictures and then mount them or otherwise transfer them to objects and and then make a kind of installation. And the things that I was really concerned with um, in my work, which is not surprising if you think about like um, re-photographic practices and, and people like Barbara Kruger, who I brought up, um, uh, was sort of an imagery around class. And that was really like my focus of the work that I made at RISD. Um, and, and yeah, and that's basically what I kind of continued doing, um, when I first moved here and kind of set up my first studio, a lot of like re-photography, a lot of photo objects and things like that. Yeah. I love the idea that you went and saw the Nan Golden show and you were like, oh, it's so moving. And then you're like, well, I'm doing that, but I'm not going to photograph people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Also like that was sort of maybe I was 17 or 18 and then I took my first photographic history class and I think especially when you're a young person things are so black and white you know so you're like seeing all these historical ways that photography was instrumentalized um, in uh, oppressive and you know violent ways and so you're sort of like yes or no are you going to be this? Or are you going to be that? And of course, my understanding now of it is way more nuanced. Um, but it was sort of the polemics of like being a young person and 
learning about complex things um, and sort of making a de- making decisions. But right. in a way, it sort of points to the fact that, like, again, you started by asking me, like, or talking about my work as all these different things. And for me, it's like there's always this um, preoccupation with, like, images and culture, and there's always this pushing up against limitations, whether I make them or the outside world makes them. So, yeah, if I make a limitation, like no photos of people, then I have to come up with how am I going to make the work I want to make without doing that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Which was the primary mode, you know, if you think about like that era of um, photographic sort of uh, practice or whatever. Yeah, and the idea of of uh, decisions is so interesting, isn't it? Like in different stages of your life, and like you make those such key big decisions as a young person. Yeah. Before you have any of that experience, you know, it's it's just it's really interesting to look back and think about it. Of like, okay, at this point, you know, I chose to go to this school instead of that school. I moved here, and and I started working in this medium because I. And sometimes the reasons are just like it's a fluke, you know. Oh yeah. And then it becomes the biggest thing in your life. It's pretty amazing. So you you finished RISD, moved out, you hopped on the Acela maybe or the train and came down. U-Haul, the, yeah. <laughs> U-Haul, yeah, the U-Haul. And uh, moved down to, Bro- was it Brooklyn, your first place? Uh, yes. yes. And then was the idea to continue on to grad school at some point? Or was that, were you putting that back in your mind? Or like, what was your plan? Oh, yeah, certainly I think they talk a lot about grad school at, um, at RISD and and many of my professors had gone to Yale in the photographic zone and so that was like you know loomed large and everything and I think that I I definitely left RISD being like I'm not going to grad school yet but eventually I will and I said I'm not going to grad school unless they give me a free ride (laughs) or a full ride and um well that was my idea um and and so that was my that was my idea and that's what i said when i left at the point of leaving undergrad um and then i worked for artists i started uh about a week after i graduated i started working for artists um and I think for the first couple of months I lived in Williamsburg. Yeah, we had a sublet in Williamsburg. Um, And then I moved into my own apartment in Red Hook. Um, And it was three or four years later that I went to grad school. And at that point I was still making the work that I was making and I just looked around and I was like, especially something like Yale, I was like, I don't fit in Yale. I don't fit in sculpture. I don't fit in photography. And so I was, and I didn't want to move out of New York. Um, I really didn't want to like go away to school. I had just gotten to New York and that was my idea. And I wanted to keep my job and I wanted to live where I lived. And um, so, I think I thought about applying to two schools and I ended up applying to one. And of course it was private and a 
phenomenally expensive, but um, it was a really well, good match for me. I went to Columbia. <laughs> it was a good thing, though, that you set out that caveat that I'm only going if they give me a full ride. So that was smart. Yeah, and they definitely did not do that. And <laughs> I did. <laughs> you um, said to them, I'm only going to your school if you give me a full ride. And they said, you can send your check to this address. I, yeah, I mean, I don't even... I. I was a horrible negotiator. I didn't even know that was like a thing. Um, I, I now try and tell everyone who will listen to me, like, you can always ask for more, but I didn't know. I was just so naive. Um, no, there was no internet. What were you going to, or at least was there? <laughs> I, I mean, there was a very you. light internet, but... Um, it wasn't this internet. No. Like, there wasn't all that information no. where you could, like, dig around and, you no. know, it was just... I mean, I was right there with you. I mean, I spent a boat ton of money on grad school and it was, you know, brutal, you know, and, I, and now as a teacher, you know, advising students when they say, well, should I go to grad school? I'm not, well, should I? And I'm like, if you're not 150% wanting to go, that's a big financial commitment to just be like wishy-washy about, you know? Yeah. It's really complex. And also my philo- I mean, I'm not like a, no one would ask me for financial advice, but I'm like, you know, money comes in, it goes out. It's a bill you pay every month, you know, that student loan bill. It's just like a utility at this point. And obviously I believe all the debt should be canceled, but um, especially at the undergrad level, but but um, yeah, it's whatever. It's, there needs to be some changes. Yeah, 100%. For sure. Yeah. Well, so was it good to be there and then do grad school there and be local? Kind of, yes. You know? Again, I'm huge nerd, love school, um, uh, really loved going. I mean, obviously, especially when you're in grad school, there's tons of things that you can be critical of and there's tons of structural issues to be critical of. But I absolutely loved the people that I, I worked with there. Um, I was in kind of sculpture and new genres, which was like a perfect match for me. And then once you got in, it was really open. So it was just a perfect um, vibe and and uh, a perfect pedagogy for me. And, um, you know, I was commuting, so I wasn't as drawn into the sort of like melodrama of people who just moved to New York and were experiencing it for the first time and were, you know, not having a job outside of school. And, uh, you know, it was just a little, I just had that like, that mentality of like, I live here, I go to my job, I also go to grad school. And because most of our classes were at night and it was like, it was great. I Sounds loved like it. A good set. And what year was it when you first started um, grad school? I started in 2003. I finished in 2005. Oh, okay. So post 9-11. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was um, working. I was, I was half a mile from ground zero on 9-11. Wait, in Manhattan? Yeah. Or in Red Hook? In oh, Manhattan. Wow. Red yeah, Hook is, is like- also pretty much that close as the as the crow flies but um but no i i worked on um broom between sixth and varick and um and i saw the first plane like hit hit right from 
6th Avenue looking south when I got oh, out of the subway. on the street when it happened? Yeah, because I started work at 9, so I got out of the subway at Canal Street like around quarter 2, and I was walking up 6th Avenue, and I saw people's like faces that were walking down 6th Avenue look like really strange at the sky and I looked back and the plane had just hit and there was like a little flame um and but yeah I thought it was an accident yeah that was it you know as soon as you say it it's it's uncanny like how fast you go like if you were here yeah. how fast you go to like oh I was yeah. doing that you know yeah because I was on the roof I saw the second on from the roof yeah you know what I, I mean? also and saw that yeah it's also yeah, like the 20th anniversary just passed so um yeah yeah that was a traumatic I mean that must have I'm sure as I think all of us in the city but you were so close it like shook you know our I don't know I remember just crossing the bridge after like the Williamsburg Bridge months after and still being freaked out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to remember how also the smell was with us for so long and the air. And um, I developed really bad allergies from that. And um, and so every time like the fall allergies come, I'm sort of like, oh, yeah. But um, but yeah, I had experienced a kind of like mass community trauma as a child. And so it was that exact same feeling. So it was a familiar feeling for me, um, as strange as that is to say, but it was the same like bodily and psychic feeling. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's also the same feeling that makes you especially, you know, at that point I had only been in New York like a year and a half or something, um, but just felt so connected. As I said, I'd never had any other ideas since I was like 14, but I was gonna end up in New York and I was kind of obsessed with Brooklyn. Um, And yeah, just sort of like, I can't leave here, (laughs) which just seems so crazy because I think a lot of people their instinct was to leave, you know, much like the pandemic. Like I didn't leave at all during the pandemic, even though so many people's instinct and with great reason, especially when children were involved were to, you know, get the fuck out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I did the same thing. I was in a deep quarantine here in my apartment and it was rough, you know, no yard, nothing, just indoors. And I think there was a different weird kind of like similar but different trauma that happened from that as well you know where it wasn't so much an event per se it was like this invisible event you know and then it played itself out so much digitally because everything was mediated because you didn't see anyone that that was weird too yeah you know Mm -hmm. not easy so the work in your work did you feel things change or were you, you kind of like you know what I mean? Did anything change? After Are you talking about like pandemic or 9-11? No, 9-11. It's sad that we have to pick. <laughs> no, the challenger. Um, no, that yeah, also. No, yeah, that was brutal too. Yeah, 9-11 I was talking about specifically. Because, you know, you're you're at that point, you've been working long enough. You're doing your work, but you're also, you know, you know, thinking about grad school at that point, right? Like you were, you yeah. know, it wasn't like you, it just started or something. Um, I have to say that maybe it didn't, um, except that 
you know, I think especially when you're an artist, I'll say the the main way that it did, it's like, so you're an artist, you have so, I'm an artist, you have so many ideas and really what you make is what you make time to make, you know, or right. space to make. And so I think it's one, the sort of um, realization that like, especially as a as a relatively young person who, you know, you always feel like you have so much time to do this. You're just like, oh, that could be gone or that could not be possible. You know, let's say like I had had an idea for doing something down by the World Trade Center. Okay, that's gone now as an idea. So I think just the realization that like if you don't, make something when you feel you need to make it like that's going to pass and it's fine it's actually not a bad thing it's just a realization um i think the other thing that was the most i I wouldn't say that it really affected my work i had a really close friend who was working primarily um in paper sculpture and it was very i guess from a distance like interesting and and profound to see how that affected her work because um you know there was so much pulverized paper that was raining down where we lived in red hook um and so it it's just impossible not to have a a different relationship with paper yeah um but in my case it was more like um i had one of my first group shows in new york that was meant to open on the 12th and we had installed the weekend before. (laughs) Um, So that was really crazy because that was, you know, a moment of excitement that was sort of like destabilized by this wider issue. I mean, the show, because we had installed it before 9-11, the show went on and I had like a performance aspect where I was there every weekend and so that was kind of weird because it was sort of like um, it was a an immediate sort of being back in community and and there was a tenderness with seeing people when we eventually did have some kind of opening reception or when I was doing my thing on the weekends um, and then also there was an installation in that same exhibition by a group called the E-Team, and they had just been in residence um, the year before at LMCC, which was in, I almost just said, which was in 9-11, but which was in the tower, (laughs) the towers. Um, And they had had all these um, carpet squares that they had taken out of surplus in that building. Um, And it had like, you know, obviously a totally different meaning to them the next day. So Yeah, that's... I mean, that, those kind of stories, you know. Um, so, well, I mean, being in Red Hook, too, you were, like, downstream of that wind cl- or that yeah. smoke cloud, right? Yep. Yeah, it just kind of, like, drifted for a while. You know, that... Well, so, moving on from that into graduate school, mm-hmm. so you had a good experience with that. And then when you came out of school, like, what's the work... So, let's talk a little bit about this vastness in your work and the different, you know, ways that you're working with materials. Yeah. 
Um, what do you want to know? <laughs> it's a pretty broad. Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by the breadth of it. And also, too, there seems to be a little bit of humor, I think, at times. And um, there's definitely um, playing with the, the the idea of the spectrum of color and optics and light. and Yeah. I don't know, know exactly what where. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about when you come to the studio what are the materials what are you thinking about like how are you coming to this place of describing ideas through the different materials and methods that you do yeah there's sort of like two main modes one is kind of a research mode um which can be a lot of things and and i i'd say which is very typical but when i was like first starting out or first in and out of grad school um there was a much closer relationship between the research and the work, um, much more immediate sort of input-output relationship. And I think as I've been now kind of making work for 20 years, it's like the input could be translated to the output in a way that like spans time and and literality in a, in a way that maybe I wasn't doing at first, which I think is just natural and also growing out of trusting myself, trusting my um, instincts and things like that. Um, but yeah, I was really, you know, I think I make work from a from a feminist point of view. I think like when people ask me like what kind of work I make, like I usually just say like medium sized, <laughs> um, which is sort of, you know, a joke, but, um, but the I never really, I very rarely work with like assistants at any great level. And I do sometimes work with fabricators or I do sometimes have help here and there. Um, but I think I'm always interested in the scale of one person in culture. And so I think that's a touchstone for my work. Um, I have worked a lot with the history of um, stand up comedy. And that's coming from two or three places, you know, one of them is uh, because stand-up is exactly sort of like the formal consideration that I'm thinking of. It's like one person filling a room with not like illusory material, right? Like it's not like a, it's not like a, like a musical or like a show with like a whole ensemble. It's like, it's one person telling a story sort of as a character that's themselves and I always say like, you know, like a photograph, their back is against the wall and they're performing outward. Um, and so that, I think that's a subject position. And then, so on the one hand, that scale issue, on the other hand, the sort of maleness of, of the endeavor or stereotypical maleness. And then, and then finally, I am really interested in the strategy um, and I think that points to the a kind of maybe it's like a midwestern populism um i don't know it's like because i could also say that you know we were talking about tapes earlier and comedy tapes were also really really important to me when i was maybe a little younger of a kid like junior high style um but basically um the strategy of sort of the mid-century comics, um, you know, Mort Saul, who just died, uh, 
Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, and the way in which their sort of like deep remarks on culture could be translated through an accessible form. And so I think that I started, I mean, I did have a lot of work that was sort of difficult in grad school and you have so many studio visits. And I think I was sort of so um, disappointed by not being able to make myself understood, you know, um, that I sort of developed um, an aesthetic strategy that like, okay, the materiality or the color or the sort of plasticity of this thing is going to bring you in on some level so that that is one read. And then the cultural critique or commentary can be built up with that. And so I I think that's kind of my approach to making work. Um, And I think, you know, it's still a struggle because I think you can't be anyone but yourself. And I, I see a lot of artists that I'm like, you know, always like, oh man, I wish I was that artist, <laughs> you know, like because of some false idea that, that it seems like easier or also out of admiration um, or also out of like the, the game recognition of, of what strategies they're working with. And, um, but you kind of can only be who you are, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you can work really hard to be rigorous and um, full, and and I think I try to, um, and I try to always like grow, and and I think that, um, but I never wanted like a signature style. Um, I think I have like a, I wouldn't want to say a signature, but I think I have a consistent approach. Like I think I have like um, a sensibility. Um, but I, I don't cultivate a style, although I was just saying this in a student to a student in a studio visit the other day. It's like, it's almost like family members. Like when you make a work, sometimes you just recognize it, you know, sometimes you just see something and you recognize it as part of your work. Right. Yeah. And that, that quote-unquote non-style can be a style in a way to have an open approach because the work it's not visually you know identifiable quickly or packageable in a way but there is something about that approach like you said that it feels cohesive you know it's a there's stand-up it's just like stand-ups there's some stand-ups that just have that you know punchline then others have that narrative storytelling approach and then there's some that vary it you know it's like yeah. Where it, you know, they, they take a different approach, but their way of seeing the world is the overarching, you know, core of, of it that sort of makes it cohesive. I'm interested too in, you know, in some of these sh- shows that you have where you're doing wallpaper and there's, you know, installations and it's kind of like immersive. Do you often have like a show and a venue and then you start thinking about how the work fits or okay that venue i'm thinking about maybe this works here do you let the site sort of um guide the physical approach to the work yeah more often than not um i think the work really finishes itself in the installation um and 
also the way I work in my studio is I almost literally never have finished works in my studio. <laughs> um, it's, it's really like a workspace. Um, I have lots of drafts where, you know, maybe I'll print something out on paper or do trials or tests. Um, but it's almost always made to scale at the site of the exhibition. And, and it's also often stuff that just happens gradually and then and then becomes a thing like you brought up the wallpapers which I guess it sort of started with um many years ago when I when I started making these sort of like aggregated photographs um which is just to say you know working with the computer interface grid to sort of make um large scale photographs are started with small scale actually that were made up of a bunch of smaller photographs and um and it was just a sort of thing that I started doing for I actually started doing it for a couple of small magazine commissions so I was I was um commissioned to do a cover and some interiors of the scholarly magazine art journal um I think that was like in 2013 Sometime around that time, I was also invited to do a cover for Anthology Film Archives program, which was like one of my favorite things to do because, you know, those are like all over our city and people can just take away and it's like a free edition. Um, and so I started kind of doing some things for that where I would aggregate images, like tile them up. And that becomes something that's so easily scalable because in my work, another thing that I think is very important is uh, roughly 100% scale. So like, I spent a really long time working for Klaus Oldenburg and Kosha von Bruggen, who of course like really worked with the idea of bringing the everyday scale to an architectural level um, as content in their work. Um, and for me, it's equally as important to sort of always be, um, like I was talking about, being that one person on a stage or that one person in culture and and not having the um, the virtuosity come from sort of like negating that you know um and so then in order to have a kind of monumentality it has to be made up of smaller parts right using this logic that i made up for myself right so has to is maybe a little bit like strong but that's basically the rules of my studio right um and so once you start to tile things and they're small and it's relating to the thumbnails and it's relating to the way that we have, you know, multiple images on our screen and we're constantly, you know, and it's relating to the little apps that are on the phone that really came to be a major visual look like, let's say, I don't know, 2008, 2009. So that starts to like infect the cultural landscape of images. And, and so um, I started doing that and it also was like, pretty important, I guess, going back even farther to an exhibition that I had at the 
Rachel Offner Gallery on Orchard, Spa- Orchard Street that was in 2011 where um, I made a bunch of pictures and they all had the same width, even though if they had variable heights and then hung them sort of almost like a user interface on a black wall. Um, so again, it was like the monumentality is coming from an aggregation and that just kind of spun into this other thing. Um, and then it also has the effect of sort sort of showing multiple possibilities in one. So instead of having like a monumental singular, there's like something of an architectural scale that is made up of a lot of smaller work and how that represents the sort of like politic that I'm interested in, in also. I don't yeah. know if any of that makes sense, but that's kind totally of my does. answer. <laughs> no, no, it does. And it's, it's funny because I was thinking about, you know, I did an installation when I used to show the Haunch of Venison. It was huge, like 24 foot painted wall and collage. And I never saw the collage put together except on the floor of a neighbor's studio because my studio wasn't big enough yeah. for like for a minute to take a photo of it. Yeah. But I didn't see it until I went there and modularly sort of, you know, had one of those scissor lifts and did the whole thing. And there's something really exciting about that of like taking these parts and making something bigger out of it. But that was like a more one-to-one literal, you know, thing. I mean, in your sense, it's it seems to resonate even more with, you know, the idea of the micro macro that we're really swimming in at the moment between information and digital landscape mediated imagery and then the bigger ideas yeah is it true that you early on worked in windows it is true um i um well i come from a kind of a long line of of very modest retail because both of my grandparents had um, women's ready to store ready to wear stores in their respective Midwestern towns. Um, and so that kind of like lexicon was was also part of my familial history. Um, and I started working in retail like I think I've got my first you know non job in retail when I was like 11, which was like helping out a shoe store like run shoes during like a special sale um and then you know i got a work permit when i was 14 and started working at a glove store and so and like you know the aforementioned um fashion magazines um so i got actually um an internship with simon dunan at barney's um, maybe around 97, 98 when I was in college. And then that, so I worked on that over the whole summer and then that translated into some freelance gigs, um, at Barney's, I think Armani, Bergdorf. Um, and it was fairly short lived, um, you know, for a number of reasons, but it was a huge influence on me. Um, and And I really, um, you know, I think partly because again, that's that window is it's, it's a low relief or maybe a deep relief. Um, but it's not in the round. Um, and it's It's facing forward. Yeah. Street, yeah. Street facing sort of, um, 
architecture, but also somehow ground level always, you know? So, so yeah, that was really, um, it is true. And, and I, in my recent show that's at the Carnegie, um, I, during the pandemic, I found this stack of Polaroids that I had saved from Barney's um, of like these wig samples. And I put it into a piece, which I thought, you know, because I was doing a series of work that did have something to do with kind of like merchandising and shopping um, and ideas of the senses. Um, But also I did think it was a quite nice um, Warhol tribute to have the the triangulation of pittsburgh warhol windows and polaroid like all that yeah is deep i mean my first job in new york city was working windows at macy's i'm from pittsburgh and i've you know the carnegie museum is the museum i used to go to as a kid all the time that really inspired me to want to be an artist and uh yeah it's a really cool sort of connection to all that thanks yeah and it's like not everyone who sees the show is going to make all those connections but um i like having that you know intellectual discussion on like a formal level in the work right can i give you a oh you you've already the show's up now right it is yeah it's up until february 2022 and you were in you were there for the install and are you going back are you pretty much there um I think I will go back, but I'm not sure if it's going to be after the um, closing. It closes. Uh, I did a short residency at Falling Water, and nice. um, and then for the install, and Wait. so I spent a good amount of time in your homeland, which is residency? beautiful. Residency there? Yeah. Oh my god! You don't get to stay in that. the house, but it is really very oh. special. And I will be going back um, to kind of finish the project. But, um, but yeah, and the, the area, everyone in Pittsburgh is so nice. Um, and the area is really beautiful this time of year in the fall. Yeah. Pittsburgh is, that's generally, I think people are pretty down to earth and nice in Pittsburgh. It's weird. And I'll give you a pro tip. Um, the Carnegie Museum, if you're from Pittsburgh, you say Carnegie. I know. I can't. And I actually grew up in Carnegie, which is the little area of Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's, I know as a New York person, you say Carnegie because of Carnegie Hall. But we Carnegians. Yes. We say Carnegie. I know. And I was really good about the pronunciation when I was in <laughs> situ. And I met with the, the teen council. And I was like, look, I say Carnegie because we have Carnegie Hall here but I understand that it's Carnegie. <laughs> and so I tried really hard and, and I guess um, I'm too far removed from being in Pittsburgh to remember that pronunciation, but. Oh no, I default. I mean, you know, cause Carnegie Hall, I say Carnegie Hall. Right. And I'm from Carnegie. Yeah. And I say it that way. That's how much I respect New York and Carnegie Hall, but. Well, also you don't want anyone Andrew correcting Carnegie. you on your own pronunciation of your own <laughs> regionalism. That's like when you have a, a, a name that people don't pronounce right and you're like, oh, my name's actually pronounced this. And they're like, no, no, yeah, that's not the way you do it. <laughs> I mean, my name in its regionalism would be pronounced Sarah <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I'm from Chicago land. So you could pull it out. Yeah. So um, so Sarah is how my family would call me. Yeah. 
Um, well, did you get to dip into a little bit of the Pittsburghese vernacular? Did you learn anything about that weird accent that we have there? Um, a little bit, but it's hard during COVID because I wasn't super social. Oh, that's... Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I find that it's like, because it's so close to West Virginia, there's a little bit of like a southern vibe to the way sometimes some people Redneck? speak. Is that what you were going <laughs> to... No, nope, I wasn't No, there is that. a little... It, you know, they call it Pennsylvania, especially in central Pennsylvania. It gets really southern for some reason. Yeah. You know, in the Keystone State. But yeah, Pittsburgh has kind of like a, you know, that kind of vibe to it, I think. It's the provincial blue collar. And then, you know, there's a very, I mean, you, you saw around the Carnegie Museum around Oakland. It's beautiful. And Squirrel Hill, that area is beautiful. Beautiful. Gorgeous. It's those old houses and like, you know, um, there's like te- really beautiful temples and there's churches everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a great area, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like a secret place, I think. Yeah. It's, um, I have nothing but good things to say about it. And Carnegie melon. Is that <laughs> People really do say school. Carnegie melon though. Don't they? I say Carnegie melon. Okay. I, everyone in Pittsburgh who's a real Pittsburgh person. Okay. Says say Carnegie. Carnegie okay. Yeah. You would never say Carnegie melon. But I've heard people say that, that have gone there even, but they're not from there, I suppose. Yeah, I think, you know, what's that annoying, like, you know, we have like three things in Pittsburgh that we're proud of, you know, the Steelers, (laughs) Permani Brothers sandwiches, and, you know, the Carnegie, (laughs) the Carnegie Museum, and Warhol. But, uh, yeah, that was a funny... Well, I'd like to add Michael Keaton to that list, please. Oh, my God, Michael Keaton. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Michael Keaton. Jeff Goldblum. Oh, actually, I'm going to put Jeff Goldblum above Michael Keaton. Oh, I will not, but um, respect. He's so great, Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Have you seen him, like, play music? He's like a jazz musician. He plays piano. He's amazing. No, I have not, but but I I definitely uh, told the curator, uh, Dan Lears, of the exhibition that Michael Keaton was my favorite thing to come from Pittsburgh, and he was like, what about Warhol? And I was like, I said what I said. (laughs) <laughs> but I do also love Warhol. What about Mr. Rogers? Let I mean, sure, list. yeah, Mr. Rogers. There's, again, a very good lineage, full lineage. Is, yeah, I, and this is a tip for anyone who made it this far into the conversation, <laughs> like young artists. You move to Pittsburgh and you can have an affordable, incredible amount of space. And there's a lot of culture there. There's museums, there's a, the Warhol, the Mattress Factory, you've got good food. I think it got Zagat's like best food city a few years ago. Really good food. I mean, it's, it's a, you can do Pittsburgh. It's a good place to live. Also, you, big ups to the Carnegie Mellon MFA, three-year, I think, funded program, I think. Yeah. Uh, recommend. Yeah, and great teachers. I mean, look, Devin teaches there. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing artist. Yeah. Devin Shibayama. There's, there's, you know, there's great faculty and... Yeah, it's, I'm just letting people know. Check it out. It's a good place. Um, so you had a good experience with the, Carne- the Carnegie Museum installation? <laughs> Carnegie? It's the Carnegie. Um, they, they call it the Carnegie. Um, I had a great experience. Everyone there is wonderful, very professional, and not without its challenges that were mostly due to COVID. Yeah. But... Um, but you know, that's a dream museum, not least of which for, 
not only its collection, but also uh, the space and the the internationals. Um, Those are great shows. If people yeah. don't know about them. They're like every, it's, I think it's every three years. Uh, five, maybe. Or maybe every it's five. five. No, it used to be there. Yeah. It's great. It um, exposes people there to such great work. Yeah. So that was a dream, a total dream. And there's been really great artists who have occupied that series like immediately before me. So, um, and I'm sure there'll be great ones after. And so it's a really nice lineage. It's great. And um, so what are you working on now? Like what's your typical day? Oh, that's really hard to say because it's so upended. It's so computer focused with with uh, COVID, but um, you know, I for many years worked out of state or I worked deep into Long Island. So um, when I, I would have teaching days, studio days and kind of personal days. And since the past five years, when I came to Pratt, um, my, my geographical world has gotten much smaller and more condensed which is sort of the first time since I started teaching, since I worked at the Oldenburgs, that um, that I've been, you know, back in a in a hyper local vibe, and so um, almost everything that I do, sort of like professionally, is on the G train. Or I have, you know, been working a little bit in Westchester County. Um, at this one glass studio, which unfortunately was totally destroyed during Hurricane Ida. And so they're closed for the time being, but I hope reopening soon. Um, So my typical day is like a lot of emailing for my job um, and then working, teaching, um, which a lot happens over Zoom and some happens uh, in the physical studios. And then, you know, I just put up uh, two shows, the Carnegie show and one at my gallery in Chicago called Document. And so I guess I've been working really regimentedly on production for those shows. And part of it is um, uh, I've been working primarily in glass, which has a really specific time scale. It's like maybe a, a short time of of real active work. Um, but then there's the preparation time of getting the materials ready and specific and, um, planning out, you know, there's a lot of sort of like work in illustrator or Photoshop that goes into planning out the pieces and then, and then production. And I've also been working with making my own hardware. Um, and so, Increasingly, I've been sort of spending some time in, in a light metal studio. And with all of these things, I'm always like, I wonder if I can get someone to do this for me. Like, can I hire you to make this blah, blah, blah? And it, it almost always ends in me just making it and learning how to make it. Like I took um, museum mount making class and, and light metals class, like jewelry class to, to learn small soldering and stuff. And um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it all, I do love making things. So it always like, it's always good. It's just a funny like workflow. You know, I, totally. I probably like when I'm getting ready for the shows, I was like individually powder coating like 
1,200 pieces of small metal that go into all these, you know, little hardware kits that I made. So that would be like a number of days and just kind of like, you know, my calendar is my friend and I schedule things out. And then um, I also try and keep at least one day a week sort of open as a, as a, you know, incorporating spontaneity or hanging out with my husband or friends or just kind of laying on the couch or doing whatever. So a you day. Yeah. I mean, that's key. Yeah. It's, it's hard to turn off once you're really scheduling things, but. Well, um, selfishly, do you have anything coming up in New York soon? Oh, I mean, I know you just recently, recently had a show, but. Um, I do have, a. am going to be in a group show, um, that I'm actually not even sure if I'm allowed to say yet, but it's going to be in downtown Manhattan. Um, okay. and it sounds like way more cool and mysterious, but I do know that I was asked explicitly not to, to mention it yet, but it's going to open in January. So that's soon enough. And it's, um, it's an older piece being shown. So, well, here's a good follow-up. How, what's the best way for people to keep up to date on things like that? Oh, Is okay. It Instagram or? Yeah, I have a private Instagram, so that's not probably the best. Um, website? Uh, my website is sgrstudio.info. I just updated it, so that's a good way. And um, and yeah, my I, I do do Instagram and my sort of jam is like, if you're a friend of a friend or an acquaintance of an acquaintance or people I know know you, then then it's a pretty low bar in terms of opening the private. But um, I think just as a professor and as someone who doesn't use my Instagram as like pure self um, promotion, like uh, I just prefer to keep it private. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And is your, the all the moonlighting stand up comedy you do, do you have a TikTok? For <laughs> nope. No? Oh. I wish people that that was to, me, but it's not. People just have to hit the comedy store and try to see when you do Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think you could do it. Oh, thanks you for the like you, have, you have some stand-up in you. Well, I mean, all, all professors do, don't we? Now, you have to have a sense of humor to deal with this Yeah, stuff. and you have to think on your feet and, and uh, deal, with heckler, too. deal with hecklers. And, exactly, yeah. yeah. You've got to get up in front of a crowd. And, and trust me, sleepy 23-year-olds not always the easiest crowd yeah. you know what I mean oh yeah and like any dad joke could just set off the room into yeah. like a series of huffs and like yeah. eye rolling that just could you know throw the class upside down so absolutely you really gotta bring it sucks it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey it is what it is you know <laughs> we were all there right we were all in those classes mm-hmm. so <laughs> all right well it was great to talk to you thank congrats you congrats on the show at the uh at the museum and, and all the stuff you're working on and you know people should check out your stuff at your website and and anytime you have a show coming up cool um, thanks so much yeah thanks so much it was it was great to sort of meet this way and i know it's just IRL immersive i know <laughs> Thank you.